Well, it's um, my turn again to share some thoughts with you. And, and you know, we're going through a little season where we're talking about, um, uh, where we're just opening up the, Beat um, the Sermon on the Mount, and we're focusing initially on the, um, the Beatitudes. And our theme for this sort of series is really things could be and things can be better. And that's kind of the narrative there. I think last week we talked about blessed are those who mourn. And uh, uh, I was going to this, this morning talk about um, blessed are the meek, but Jim's got a great message on that, so I'm not going to steal his thunder. You want to hear what Jim's got to say about that in a couple of weeks' time. That is going to be really great. Um, so I'm going to talk this morning a little bit about blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. One of the Beatitudes, key Beatitudes. A lot more to that uh, line than you might think, and I'm only going to be able to touch on it a little bit today. I mentioned last week that I love the fact that Matthew puts all of Jesus' main teachings in one section under the heading Sermon on the Mount, and that's quite significant because much of the same similar teaching you'll find in other Gospels in Luke and so on. Luke contains a lot of the, of the same teaching, but Matthew is really, I think, making this point, suggested it last week, that he wants us to kind of look at this teaching a little bit in the way that the Bible talks about Moses coming down from the mountain with, with the law, something significant and important. And of course, uh, in this context, Matthew's saying you need to look at Jesus' teaching. He's delivering it from a mountainside in the same kind of context, that it's significant and it's important. It's revolutionary. It changes everything. And of course, we know that Jesus is talking here about um, the fulfillment of the law. But he's encouraging us to think um, in, a, in a completely different way. And as we've been saying the last two or three weeks, uh, that what, what Jesus is doing here is not so much talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven as Matthew refers to it. It's the same principle. Matthew, Matthew talks about the kingdom of heaven. Um, he's talking as if from there. And it's an invitation to step in. Okay, so it's not about something. He's talking about it in a very invitational way. And of course, if you listen to the teaching, it poses lots and lots of questions, which of course is entirely Jesus' intention with this teaching. He wants us to think about and to ask lots of questions around what the kingdom of God is like and how things could be really better, how things could be really different if we understood what it meant to live our life in a paradigm of the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of the earth. So we're on the earth and we live in the earth and what we see and touch and feel is the earth but there's this there's this there's alongside this is the kingdom of god which we're in but we can't see but we're able to be involved so that people can see it and so the questions couple of questions i've been thinking about this week and i'm just going to share thoughts really can a person truly follow jesus without being changed you know can you really follow jesus without being changed <clears throat> can things be better in our lives by leading a God-fearing life? Just a God-fearing life. Can we really uh, follow Jesus if we are not actively participating in and receiving the prompting of the Holy Spirit? And it's a question for you, and it's a question I've been asking myself this week. I mean, I kind of think I'm a Christian, and I think I'm led by the Spirit, but I've been asking myself, am I led by the Spirit? You know, and, and how am I participating in that process? Because again, what Jesus is talking about here is you have to be led by the Spirit if you're going to follow Jesus. 
And you can't really follow Jesus if you're not, you're probably not really following Jesus if you're not going through this process of change. And so this is an invitation in the Beatitudes to look at that. And of course, Jesus makes these point, this point in the, in the Beatitudes. It's, it's really begging this question, can I really enjoy <clears throat> all of the benefits of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven um, if our actions don't come as a result of change? So in other words, if I never change, if I never change what I do, um, will I access all the benefits of the kingdom of heaven? It's a question that Jesus is posing here. Because there's a difference between um, putting our faith in religion and practice, and in some senses it's a bit easier to put your faith in religion and practice because that's a kind of known and identifiable thing. But what I guess Jesus is posing through the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes in particular is saying, daring, daring us to take some risks away from what might be traditional thinking. It's revolutionary. And it requires us to be revolutionary people and to be willing to take the risk to move from the soundness of some of the other things that we practice and do. So when I've been reading it through this week, I can only reflect on some things that I felt, and you may feel the same, but I, I felt God say to me, Stephen, through this reading, get a new heart. And I think that's what it's about. Jesus is saying to us here, hear this teaching, hear these words, and then get a new heart. That's not to say there's anything wrong with our hearts, but just get a new heart. Because one after another, the Beatitudes tell us that blessings will come to those um, who become new. For example, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. So we have to be merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. The children of God. See, what the Beatitudes do is to hold the lid down. I think it holds the lid down on traditional teaching and false teaching that says you have to believe in, if you believe in Jesus, that you can just be a religious kind of person and you can then just do whatever you like but actually Jesus is challenging that from the very first words in the sermon on the mount to the very last he's saying get a new heart become a new person and that's a process of course ongoing process that we work in in um, Matthew 5.20 he says But I warn you, this is Jesus speaking, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) So that's a bit of an incentive, I think, isn't it? But I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of, of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So we think about that at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this in verse 7. Right at the end of it all, he shouts from the top of the hillside. "Um, But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey, it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rain and the floods come and the winds will beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. 
we've got some new neighbours um, living near us and uh, um, they're living in quite an old house and they've moved from a city and they're a nice young couple, super wonderful people and they've never experienced the kind of weather that we've, we've had and the last weekend in particular and I guess probably this weekend I've not seen them, they said they, they didn't go out of the house and they were up all night absolutely terrified and I said why were you so frightened? And they said, well, we honestly thought the house was going to blow down. <laughs> and I said, that house has been there for 200 years. Okay, it's been windy before, you know. Go to bed, sleep. The house will still be there in the morning. <laughs> um, but it's interesting, isn't it, how we have fear around that kind of stuff. thought the house was going to blow down. But, of course, it will if it's not built on proper foundations. And that's what Jesus is saying to us here. I mentioned last week that Beatitudes are not a series of suggestions on how to make the world better. On the contrary, Jesus is explaining that what the kingdom of God looks like and, and gives us a really helpful pathway to follow to enter into the kingdom of heaven, to enter into the kingdom of God in the here and now, not just when we die, but in the here and now. It's an invitation, and he's saying this is the way that things will get better if we live and move and operate in that way. So it's about us, and it's about him. It's not about anyone else. And if we follow Jesus, we know that it's a, it's a narrow path. And it's not easy. So, when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God, He's not telling us how to become a son or daughter of God. What he's saying is that if you've decided to follow me, if you've decided to follow Jesus, in other words, if you're a Christian, then you are a peacemaker. You are. We are peacemakers. So it's not something that we that we have to apply for or something that we do the moment we took the decision to follow Jesus then we are labelled as peacemakers it's quite an important difference in understanding that you don't kind of find your way to God by being a peacemaker when you find your way to God you are then a peacemaker so you're a peacemaker, you're a peacemaker. if you're here, if you follow Jesus today you're a peacemaker and that's why sometimes we're referred to as being the people of peace. I love that expression. I like to think of the church. I like to think of this church as being full of the people of peace. Just think about that for a moment. We're the people of peace. It's really powerful. And we really need to get hold of that. I need to get hold of that. I'm a person of peace. And Jesus, of course, made peace. <clears throat> a few verses, Romans 16, 21. 20. Just the nature of God is peace. And just to touch on that, Romans 16, 21. The God of peace will crush the enemy under your feet. It's the God of peace, not the God of war. It's the God of peace who will crush the enemy under your feet. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, Paul says. And then 1 Thessalonians, in some final greetings that Paul makes to the church, he says, now... May the God of peace make you holy in every way. The God of peace make you holy in every way. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless 
until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Blameless in the area of peace. And then Hebrews 11, uh, sorry, Hebrews 13, 20. Now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood. May he equip you with all that you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him and may glory to him be forever and ever. Amen. God is a peacemaking God. You know that. The whole history of redemption in the Bible, culminating on Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection, is all about God's strategy to bring peace into this world, to bring peace to humankind. The whole strategy is around peace. And once we enter into that, we become peacemakers. But actually, the reality for many of us is, at times in our life, and we see it all around us, is that people are at war with God. People are at war with God. And so much of the trouble that we see in the world is not people being just necessarily at war with one another, they're at war with God. And there's probably been times in your life, and there will be certainly times in my life, when I've been at war with God. So we have to think about that for a moment or two because God is a God of peace. He's not a God of war. So we don't need to be at war with God. He's not at war with us. God's not angry with us. He's not at war with us. He's not angry with anyone. He's a God of peace. And so we've got to think about that because if we're people of peace, then what does that mean in in terms of how we react and respond to the people around us and the situations that we struggle with? We have to come at it from a place of peace. So as children of God, we have his character. We're made in God's image. Um, and we're made, if we're made in the image of God, then we love what God loves. So if God loves peace, we love peace. And if Jesus pursues peace in his ministry, which of course he does, Jesus is pursuing peace throughout his journey on this earth and is pursuing it now through us by the Spirit. We should be of the same heart and mind. So it isn't just a line in the Beatitudes um, about uh, that people are of peace are children of God. It's so fundamental to everything he's called into us. So we touched on being led by the Spirit. Why it's important to be led by the Spirit, and the Spirit leads us, the Spirit wants to lead us, and we have to cooperate in that process. It's because if we're leaning into the Holy Spirit, then we will be leaning into peace. Because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of peace. And what's one of the fruits of the Spirit? Peace. (laughs) Okay. So if we live in God's agenda for and around our community, then we, and in our families, in our workplaces, then the fruit of that will be peace. And we'll bring peace into all of the situations that we are in and around. But I think sometimes we need to push for peace. It isn't just a case of being people of peace. Sometimes we need to push for peace because it doesn't become natural or instinctive. In fact, in many situations, our instinct to life is to do the opposite to peace. I don't know about you, but that will certainly be 
been the case for me. I can think of lots of times that I've caused more trouble than I've caused peace. Uh, Matthew 5, uh, 43. Jesus makes this point when he teaches us about love for our enemies. Have you heard the law? Have you heard the law that says love your neighbor and hate your enemy? But I say love your enemies <laughs> and pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you'll be acting as true children of your Father of Heaven, for He um, gives His sunlight both to evil and good people. And he sends rain on the just as well as the unjust. So perhaps peacemaking is an act of love that helps us bring reconciliation to the people around us. <clears throat> I was thinking this the other day. I am um, thinking about building bridges. I'm thinking about what does that mean in my day-to-day -day relationships. I had a bit of a fallout with somebody <clears throat> not directly involved in, in church, but um, a few months ago, and I felt this person had been less than honest with me, and the conversation ended with this person walking out of my office and slamming the door. Where do I go with that? I haven't seen that person since, but the other day, I was walking down the high street, and I was walking, you know, sometimes when you walk down the high street, there's lots of people around, you know, and there's loads of people, but suddenly you can only see one person. <laughs> it's like all the, everyone else on the pavement and everyone else in the high street kind of went into that kind of blur. I couldn't see any faces. I could only once see one face walking towards me, and this was this person. So what did I want to do? I wanted to dive into a shop. <laughs> cross the road <laughs> yeah but I just felt like the spirit of God come upon me and and I went up and spoke to him okay and it was good it was all right it didn't resolve anything but it was good but it's sometimes so easy to do the other things I think I think there's probably been times in church life certainly for me and you'll have had that too when you'd have maybe come to church on a Sunday and somebody's got under your skin and then the next week, it's just easier to avoid that person to sit somewhere else. But that's not being a person of peace. <laughs> you know, we have to find our way through that stuff. So if someone offends us, I mean, part of this whole point about, you know, loving our enemies is about being a person of peace. Somebody's got to offer the olive branch, haven't they? Okay. And actually, that should be me. That should be you. We have to offer the olive branch because we're people of peace. Um, so that's being intentional about it. But I also think it's a question of longing for peace. I think we need to long for peace. And not allowing a rupture in a relationship to rest easily with us. Sometimes it's just easy to park ruptures in relationships ruptures in situations, just park it, leave it alone and it will go away. And sometimes maybe it does, but I think there should be something in us that longs to create that reconciliation and to create that peace. But then it doesn't always work, being a person of peace. It doesn't always work. Because sometimes, in order to make peace, we might be required to compromise our truth. 
But the Bible's very helpful about this. And it's covered in Matthew 10.34. When Jesus says this, this is challenging. Don't imagine that I came to bring peace to the earth. I came not to bring peace, but to bring a sword. Okay? Different teaching and a different context. So Jesus is saying, pray for your enemies, work for peace, overcome all the barriers that there are in your life, but don't abandon your faith. Because no matter how much animosity and difficulty that you encounter in your life and that comes into your world, don't cause it to compromise your faith. That's where the, the kind of desire to bring peace conflicts with our desire to hold on to our faith. There's a tension there. And Jesus is saying, never abandon the faith, but try and live in peace around that. Okay, so I'm just going to come to a close. I was thinking this, I was watching, I don't know if you watched the news this week and saw the bombing that was going on in Syria. I mean, to be honest with you, after watching 10 minutes of that on, I think it was news at 10, one of the news broadcasts, I don't think I could, I could hardly get out of the chair um, for the kind of grief I'm feeling. Now, I understand what President Assad is doing. I'm not being, you know, he's saying, well, there are people in this city that are against me and against my country. They're rebels, they're terrorists, and I need to get them out of my country. So what I have to do is, is to bomb that city. And, of course, he's been doing that for a long time. But what's going on there will be the equivalent of us saying maybe like, I don't know, there's a, there's a handful of terrorists, enemies of the United Kingdom living in Bristol, and we need to drive them out of Bristol. So we send the planes in and bomb Bristol. I mean, that's what's happening. And so we're seeing scenes of innocent, perfectly innocent people, children and families, just having bombs dropped on their houses. And it's really nothing to do with them. And I struggle with that. And I think about then what Jesus says about peace in the Sermon on the Mount. What's interesting here is that he makes this subject really personal. He's talking to us personally. He's not talking about Syria. You see, when Jesus was saying these things on the, on the Mount, when he was talking to the disciples and the people listening to him about peace, was he not aware that at the same time, or around that time, something like about 3,000 um, Jews were slaughtered at a Passover event? And the Romans actually mixed their blood with the blood of the sacrifices that they were making at the event? Can you imagine how detestable, how disgusting that was for them, and how awful that was? So when Jesus is talking about peace, was he not aware that that was going on? Was he not aware that even in Jerusalem, Jews were being bludgeoned to death by Roman soldiers just for looking at them? Was he not aware that Pilate was constantly trying to massacre worshippers? Well, of course he was. Luke 13 Luke writes about it. He says, about this time, the time that Jesus was giving his teaching, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. 
Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than the other people from Galilee? Jesus asked. Is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you'll perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. Again, that unless you repent, you'll perish too. Challenging stuff. So, of course, Jesus is completely aware of what's going on. But here he's talking about the kingdom of God. He takes on social injustice. He takes on war. He takes on outrage. He takes it on by turning it back to us. What about you, Stephen John Fowler? What about you, Gillian Fowler? Sean? Sue? <laughs> I don't mean that in accuracy. say. Because the most important thing to Jesus is the destiny of your and my souls. That's what's important to him, is the destiny of our souls. Do you ever feel angry about paying your tax? We're going to have a new chancellor soon, and I'm sure that's going to have some implications for some of us in the room. I don't know. Maybe good, maybe not. But what does Jesus say? Don't complain about that. Pay your taxes to Caesar. It's due to him. Okay? Be a peacemaker in that too. Every time Jesus points all of this back, so when I look at Syria, when I'm struggling to get off of my sofa, and I'm angry with President Assad, and I'm angry with, um, what's his name, Donald Trump, and all the other people that are involved in all of those horrible things, and I'm angry about that. Jesus says to me, Stephen, are you a peacemaker? Because blessed are the peacemakers, for they are the children of God. Amen. Amen.